This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. This is Play by Playcast, and indeed, my name is Joel Godet. Thanks, as always, for clicking subscribe or download. Joining us today on the podcast about Play by Play Broadcasters for Play by Play Broadcasters, hosted by a Play by Play Broadcaster. As always, you can interact with the pod. Find us on Twitter. We are at PXPCast. If you're searching for us to actually find the podcast, though, on iTunes or whatnot, A, you've already done it, so congratulations, but B, it's Play-by-Playcast. Um, I probably should have done those uniformly. Little difference there. But uh, at PXPCast, if you're searching on Twitter, um, I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. If you want to interact with me as well, can't promise I'll get to it immediately because I'm in Europe right now. Uh, welcome to a pre the, the second pre-recorded episode of Play-By-Playcast. Uh, I'm in Italy, and this podcast is in America. Actually, we've had listeners all over the world, but I'm recording this before I leave, so take it for what it's worth. All right, anyway, Craig Bullerjack is our guest this week. Uh, He's the voice on television of the Utah Jazz, and Craig has done a little bit of everything. So this is kind of a broad scope interview. We, We really touch on a lot of topics. A guy who started out in television news or, or sports on television. Um, he's from Missouri. He went to college at K-State, Kansas State, um, then got into television sports, which eventually led him out west to Salt Lake City. And he's never left. Uh, he started doing more play-by-play, got himself into network play-by-play, has worked for ESPN, has worked for Fox, has worked for CBS. He's done the NFL on both. Fox and CBS. He's done the NCAA tournament on CBS. Uh, He has done downhill skiing. We will touch on that for sure. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk about his prep, kind of his photographic memory as well. He does all his charts, by the way, by hand. All of them. Like the jazz charts by hand. And he calls the jazz 82 times a year. So he's got to remake remake that chart every time. Uh, So we'll touch on that. We'll touch on team versus network broadcasting, what it's like being the voice of the jazz versus kind of parachuting in and doing individual games. Um, We'll talk about calling games in smaller crowds. That's something we've really not talked about on this podcast a lot. But how much do you let the game breathe and, and do you let it breathe differently when you're doing the jazz and Golden State in Oracle Arena and the place is popping or when you're doing the Jazz, and not to disparage any in particular team, a team that doesn't draw well on a Tuesday, and it's a quiet arena, uh, how does that impact how you call a game? We'll touch on that. Uh, We'll talk about his NCAA tournament experience and memorable games that he was on the call for that as well. Uh, We really touch on a lot of topics, so it was exciting to to sit down with Craig Bowlerjack this week, Uh, a man of many hats, and this week the guest on PXPCast. Take a listen. I was at Kansas State, Joel. It was um, I actually started off as a biology major, if you can believe that. Okay. I, I still I'm still interested in the sciences and the hows and whys and 
you know, why it's, why it's, you know, how it all happened. But uh, I, I walked on at Kansas State, didn't last long for football, had some knee problems. You've, everyone's heard those stories from every athlete uh, who wanted to, to try to achieve uh, alleged greatness in college and beyond. But, uh, you know, you really had to grow up fast. When I knew I was done on the field, um, my brother, actually, who's four years older than I am, was a senior at K-State at the time. And he said, look, man, you can't go home. You can't quit. Let's figure out something. So he had a friend who was in, in uh, the School of Broadcasting at Kansas State. So I started to take a couple of elective classes, introduction to broadcasting. Uh, I, I enrolled in a, in a uh, radio participation course, started doing some stuff, getting involved. And I, I just realized at that time when I walked in uh, to the newsroom and started doing some updates, actually I disc jockeyed on Tuesday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Uh, so I got a real good taste of the business and I realized that I wanted it to go into sports. And luckily, I had an audition in Topeka, Kansas uh, in 1981 after I graduated. Got a weekend sports job there. I worked there for a year. They transferred me down to Wichita, Kansas. It was uh, uh, the same station. Uh, they had like three in the, called the Kansas State Network. Uh, so I was at the uh, NBC affiliate in Wichita there for three years. And then somebody happened to watch a sports cast that I had, I, that I was doing, uh, from Salt Lake city and they hired me here and I was at local television market for 13 years, CBS for 13 Fox for four. And in between, I did some freelance work in the early days, uh, for ESPN when they first got on the air and introduced ESPN to the, the deuce. And, uh, I've been very fortunate 13 years coming up on my 13th season with Utah jazz. So in a nutshell, there I am. Did you did you want to go into the play-by-play, or I guess when did you get bit by the I want to try the play-by-play side of things bug? You know, I always did. I think when I was in college, I got the bug there because I was able to get involved with the student radio station who had a deal with the local high school called, it's amazing here all these years later, Lucky <laughs> High. Lucky High football is on the air. That was the big, uh, the big welcome, how you doing on Friday Night Football. So I started to do I started doing football on the radio at the high school level, high school level uh, basketball. Also, I did uh, college baseball play by play. And that's difficult, mind you. Uh, Vince Scully is an absolute master at his craft during his career before he retired. But baseball boy, uh, you really you really got to be on your toes with stats. And it's uh, it's a real challenge when you do a double header. Uh, but, you know, I, I realized, hey, this is the way I want to go. It was going to take some time to get that opportunity. But I also love to write, Joel. And so I had a chance to write my own scripts, get on the air in Topeka and started to learn my craft just on a nightly uh, basis doing weekend sports at 6 and 10. Then in Wichita, I had a chance to do more and more sideline reporter uh, for the MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League. That got my taste buds really uh, kind of hopping. The next year, uh, they moved in, moved me into the play-by-play chair. And then when I got to Salt Lake City, Jim Nance, who, who he and I are great friends uh, for years, uh, he went on to CBS, which allowed me to step into the BYU chair to do television play-by-play for BYU right after they won the national championship back in 84. So I think I think my story is you take advantage of opportunities that come your way and you never know when they will. 
And Nance, Nance going to CBS opened really the door for me to start really getting involved heavily, not only with 6 and 10 o'clock sportscasts, but on the weekends traveling, uh, whether it's Hawaii or to San Diego State, New Mexico, UTEP, the old Mountain West Conference, the old WAC. And those are, those are the times I really got a lot of experience. And then ESPN, uh, luckily, I threw a tape out to somebody who wanted to see one, and I got hired to start doing college basketball and football on the side for ESPN as well. And then full-time with CBS for 13 years doing NFL, college football, college basketball, and women's gymnastics, and also downhill skiing. I was I mean, going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, I had, I, I, you know, I just never thought I'd have that opportunity to world do World Cup or, or downhill moguls, and it, it, it's been a great journey, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, while we're there, I, I was going to get to it later, but but now that you bring it up, uh, when you do something like gymnastics or particularly downhill skiing, um, yeah. how did you prepare for downhill skiing? Um, and and how do you get comfortable enough to, to feel like I'm, A, not going to get exposed, B, I know enough about the people, C, I know enough about the sport, and, and D, I know enough about my analysts to be able to kind of lean on them um, and help them guide me? Great question. Great question. And you do your homework like you do anything else. And I studied the skiers that I was going to be talking about. And my job, really, when we did uh, the World uh, Mogul Championships, I think we were in Bangor, Maine. I think I did. I did. Guys, this is really testing my memory. <laughs> and um, and then I, I worked with a terrific uh, analyst at the time who had been on the Olympic U.S. Olympic team. I think it was Trey Worthington. Um, but we, um, we really just worked together. We did a lot of this stuff on site, uh, standups and some play by play. And then they sent us, sent us to New York right after, uh, to do some stuff in the, some post-production work in the studio. So we did a majority of it, uh, as if live. And then we came back in and they melted, you know, two days of competition down into one hour. And so we had to just kind of melt it all into, into a special, uh, CBS Sports Spectacular uh, production, and it was fun. That was a that was a real challenge to blend what you had done there, and then bring it back into studio, and make sure you still had that same excitement level, and just to do some standings. And, you know, we had to do some final standing boards and that type of thing. So it it really was a, a magical thing to put it all together and blend it. Uh, but I think your question is 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 one that I was a skier myself. Uh, we, you know, I skied when I was a kid, I skied a lot here in Salt Lake with the mountains and uh, park city and deer Valley. And so I, and plus I had some, um, affiliation with the U S ski team as well. So it all kind of, it all kind of came together. And the same goes for university of Utah gymnastics who have been a powerhouse for years. Uh, and the women's team, I got to know, well, Greg Marzen was then the, the, uh, the coach. And so when I got a chance to do the women's gymnastics championships. Uh, I worked uh, again, I think we did it in Athens, Georgia. Uh, the Bulldogs hosted that particular uh, season's championship. And again, we had to cut two, three days of competition down to one hour again of a CPS sports spectacular, but uh, I had a great time. It was fun. And I was lucky to know the sport because I'd covered it uh, up on uh, the hill. They call it the university of Utah and a lot of, and they were in the finals. So really kind of helped that I kind of knew a lot of the uh, the contestants, the coaches, UCLA. I'd kind of run across uh, some of those in the past. So it, it helped. It helped a lot. 
Do you remember anything 17 years later about skiing terminology or things? That, I mean, obviously you, you do it a lot, but like, are there things that you learned that? Were like, oh, I you need to know. know this? Yeah, it's, you know, the little slang terms for Daffy Duck and the crossover and the windmill, you know, all that stuff when they, they hit the mogul and, you know, they're trying to find the trying to find a tight line. You know, that was the big line, you know, you know, and the, I tell you, the moguls were amazing. I mean, those those uh, athletes, male and female, are, are spectacular. They must have uh, and I wish I had knees like that. Uh, they must have, you know, shock absorbers because they were able to cut a line like I've never seen before. Terrific athletes, uh, amazing athletes. You mentioned uh, having known Nance for a while as well. Um, and obviously going back to when you started doing the BYU stuff, uh, what's it like uh, being able to see a guy like that work up pers- up close and in person and kind of have the relationship that you have with them and, and get a different uh, vantage point for a guy that is, is so well revered in the industry nowadays. Well, you, you know, when Jim and I got to know each other in Salt Lake, it was a short time, but we really made a connection. I really respected his work and, uh, you know, he was a year younger than I was and he'd come up the fast track, uh, but just a natural. And he had, a, you know, just had a great ability to interact with people and he was just a natural and very relaxed in a studio setting, which I think CBS saw right from the start. And now the rest is history. Voice of uh, CBS golf, the masters, uh, NFL. I think he's got uh, Tony Romo in the booth this year, uh, college basketball. I worked with Clark Kellogg and Billy Packer myself, and they both called the finals with, with the uh, gym. And I, I loved working with both those guys in tournament time and, and just during the regular season. But we stayed in touch uh, throughout those 13 years when I was in, uh, you know, traveling, I'd run in, I run into him. And then uh, I had an agent uh, when I was at uh, ESPN, they had an opening at CBS for a new NFL college football announcer. And uh, I threw my name in the ring and lo and behold, they brought me out. And I, I met him at the 98 um, NCAA men's championship basketball championships in San Antonio. And I signed a, a contract with CBS right there in San Antonio and started working for them that fall doing NFL and college football. And then I added all these other uh, <laughs> fun <laughs> events that got me into division. I, I call the division two championship in basketball. And again, 12 of the 13 years I did the NCAA tournament basketball as well. First round did some Westwood one radio round two. Uh, I mean, it just, uh, just opportunities that come and you do your best and hopefully you elevate yourself to the next level. And then I took a chance at Fox. Uh, they were really revamping their sports department. Uh, they, they hired Gus Johnson and myself to come over and Gus is still there. I had a four, almost five year run, really got involved heavily with the Utah jazz, which is a a hundred game season. And I just really had an issue trying to balance schedules and, uh, starting my 13th year with the jazz now. And, uh, finally we hit the playoffs after a five-year drought. So <laughs> it, it was, it was a fun year and we're hoping for better for even better coming up here in the next few months. What do you like better? Uh, and, and are there differences to, uh, being tied to the jazz and you're able to, there, there's a, a level of homerism because you are a team's yeah. voice. Uh, right, and, right. and obviously you're ingrained with them. You know, the guys, you know, the stories who follow the team, um, the pros and cons of that versus kind of being able to parachute in uh, and do one game here and there, uh, but you're also on the national stage. Right. That, you know, that's, that's something I've pondered a lot because you get criticized no matter what you do in this business. And if you do parachute, I like that because I think it's a great analogy of parachuting in. Let's say we do the, 
the, the Cleveland Browns and the Cincinnati Bengals. Okay. Now look, I'm going to do the best study I can. I follow the NFL the best I can, as I did the SEC Big 12, Pac-12. Those were my, my, my three conferences that I basically had to be an expert at. But look, when you're not there every day at practice, look, the, the so-called insiders know that I get most of my information the week prior or up to uh, the game. Coaches, insight with uh, uh, coordinators. Uh, we go on site, practice, talk to coaches, again, coordinators, and probably four to five players. Uh, same with the National Football League. Uh, I've been an NFL fan from day one when I was about four years old. I, I was a, I'm a Kansas City native, grew up in southern Missouri, but uh, in fifth grade was in Kansas City. So I followed the NFL and the Chiefs to this day, Andy Reid and, and Alex Smith, trying to get something done. We haven't been to the Super Bowl since 1970, <laughs> Joel. Come on. So I follow that. So, you know, what I'd love to do is my hobby is my job as well. You know, I love to fish. So I guess I haven't done any fishing, but, um, you know, I, I think that's part of the, the reason why I'm in this business is because that is part of me and I follow it just naturally. Um, but to get back to your original question, parachuting in to do the Bengals or the Browns or the, uh, you know, the Georgia Bulldogs and the Auburn Tigers, Look, I follow them, but again, the criticize the criticism would come as well. You guys just drop in for a week. Yeah, okay, I get it, but you still do your homework and you put on the best broadcast you can. And look, when the game is live, no matter what you do, things happen. You 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 don't script it; you study it. And a lot of things are left on the floor. A lot of things you use throughout that three and a half hour broadcast. And I've been involved in some incredible games where, uh, you know, Oklahoma's P. Ryan a few years ago set a new NCAA rushing record, and everything that we wanted to do was on the floor because we watched this young kid run and rip off 6.7 yards per carry, and, I, you know, and it finished off an incredible day. And those are the, that's the beauty of sport and just the unknown that happens as you prepare for a week's game or even a, a game in the NBA. You never know what's going to occur. And that's what I think the addiction of the business is, is because it's live and it's un unscripted and unpredictable. I want to, uh, this question, I kind of want to break off into those those same two categories as well, if, if possible. Um, from the standpoint of when you, when you do a game, uh, and this goes into working with producers and your analyst and kind of as the whole team of it, uh, let's, I guess, start on the jazz side of things. What do you do to approach it as saying, we're not broadcasting a game, but we're broadcasting this game. Uh, and over the course of an 82-game season, uh, making sure that each game is distinct, has its own story arc, um, not just, obviously, you, you do that as the game itself develops, but when you go into it, um, what do you do that is different in terms of your approach, in terms of your preparation, in terms of trying to identify why game number 34 is special? Uh, again, nice question. I, I want to go back real quick to why you, you, you also asked me, I didn't finish the second part of that question prior to, which relates to this question, by the way, and that's being the voice of a NBA hometown franchise. And look, the way I've approached it because of my national work and your ability to call it both, you know, right down the middle is that with the Jazz, I still try to bring that perspective uh, for fans. Look, I can sit there and holler and hoot all night long, but look, there's 10% of the fans that want to hear that, Joel. 90%, you know, 
you kind of break it down into a very hardcore, uh, an outer core, and then just kind of just a casual fan that only tunes in if it's a playoff game or if it has LeBron or back in the day when Kobe was playing. Okay, those are the guys, the fringe player or the fringe fan who just is going to tune in for at a party. So I try to look at all three of those avenues of fans and try to touch all of them. But at the same time, the core audience is someone who knows basketball, who knows football, and they want it square up and straight up. You know why? Because they know the game. And if I if I become too much of a, oh, what a horrible call that is. And in reality, I know that, you know, look, the NBA, college, you know, you can't make a call hardly the speed of the game. The NBA is nearly impossible. There's conspiracy theories. I get that. But look, I try to call it through my eyes as a fan. And that's really been my my I, I guess I've put my hat on that for my career and who I am. Uh, I don't try to homer, uh, but I get excited. Absolutely. When Rudy Gobert swats five shots out of bounds, you know, in, in, a, in a fourth quarter when the ball game against the uh, the Clippers or the Warriors is coming down to the wire. Absolutely. My enthusiasm is right there for the jazz. But also Matt Harpering and I, who does. 60 games and Ron Boone, who does the other uh, 22 or so. Um, I, I think that we both have the knowledge to say, look, let's talk basketball. We try to talk a big circle, uh, uh, an arc of topics that involve both the jazz, the NBA, and, and obviously our opponent. Uh, we're not just out there on a school ground, uh, basketball court, just playing nobody. I mean, we're playing very good athletes on every given night uh, on different teams, and there's a lot to talk about. So that kind of hopefully, you know, blends into, into your, into your next question. And, um, we do try to make it distinct. Uh, and that's something we've talked about in our broadcast group. Um, I'll throw in a name, Travis Henderson, uh, who's our producer director. And we have others, uh, about a five man team, not big. Uh, so we're pretty tight. We're close and we travel a lot. It's like a, a secondary family, honestly, on the road, especially, but we have open dialogue and conversation. Do we always agree? No. Uh, are there storylines every night? Yeah. And that means that we take a look at what the Jazz did the prior game, who's on a streak. We try to look at tendencies, and we also try to do storylines that will in- interest the fan for the opposition as well to bring them into the ball game of why. Why should you watch? That's always what we ask ourselves. And I think that's really a good question every night to try to make each game distinctive. And uh, I think we do a good job at it. Uh, we we uh, we get strong ratings for a mid-sized market team, and last year was even more exciting with Hayward becoming an All-Star, Gobert making his name known in the world of uh, potentially Defensive Player of the Year, and the fact that Jazz won 51 games and and, and got into the second round against Golden State. So uh, there were a lot of storylines, and we followed every one of them, which I think helped make each game special. On the national side of things. Similar question. It's different because there is uh, no shortage of storylines when you're dropping in from one game because there's so much to crunch down. But that being said, um, what's always been your approach to, uh, I imagine there was an easy way to get overwhelmed in what is important. Uh, How do you find what's truly important? Yeah, Joel, I tell you, when the day before really the uh, the internet became even more powerful, and I'm telling <laughs> you, I think in the last two or three years, um, you know, I'm getting everything now, even from the NBA off offline, online. Um, 
But let me tell you a day not long ago where I had the FedEx reporter or, or driver come to my door every morning with a package of 10 pounds of paper. And you make a great point about overwhelm. I mean, look, there's only so much I can inhale, digest, and then exhale on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. And, you know, I try to find a nugget, two nuggets on each player. And then I write, I do my charts by hand, you know, too deep as we call them and flip charts with, you know, uh, left to right would be left tackle off to the tight end and quarterback. And I do too deep in each of those positions and flip it. The flip card would then have the, the, the two deep for, for the do you, defense. Do you do your jazz by hands too? I do. Yeah. You know, a lot of people laugh at me because they use computer or templates, but look, I, my mind works as a flash, like a photo. I, I look at it and I have color coordinated, you know, names and numbers and things I highlight with yellow blues and greens that works for me. Now for others, they have used the computer and have a template and it probably is quicker to set up your chart, but I like to work on it because what I do is I, I can memorize it and I can see it in my mind's eye. And then I write down those nuggets of information. Uh, and then you let the game come to you. I don't try to force it. Uh, but if it happens, I'm prepared. Uh, you know, we, we've had games that shoot the jazz are down 30. And I know that people are watching reruns of Gilligan's Island, you know, but, but you still have a job to do and still have to get through that tough third quarter and that finishing fourth. And that's where your work comes into play. Talking more of a broad spectrum of the NBA, uh, what the jazz, how they'll bounce back from this. Let's say they're playing the Cavs, where they're going, look ahead at the schedule. Uh, you know, are the Jazz going to play? This is their fourth game in five nights. Fatigue is set in. The Cavs are fresh coming off. of. Uh, you know, they've been home for the last 10 days. And sure, the Jazz are, are running in mud right now. But you don't want to overdo that either, Joel, because, look, these are professional athletes, and they don't really want to put a, a handle on excuses either. You'll never hear it from most coaches. Yeah, they'll say, yeah, we're tired. Yeah, but, you know, that's that doesn't mean we can't come out and compete and play. And I think that you have to always keep that in mind. The fans do come uh, and they do put, pay a hefty sum to see great athletes perform at a high level every night. And that's what the expectation is. And so I have to keep that in mind as well, because the fans still drive this. Uh, we know that the net television network, you know, billions of dollars are paid for rights fees. And the NBA is as healthy as they've ever been. But still, the product has to equate to the level that's being paid. And I think that's something that Adam Silver is going to have to really look into. And I hear, I don't know, that I think this season's schedule may have more rest dates. We may start earlier so that this rest, you know, this rest issue uh, is going to be squelched because the networks pay too much for rights fees and the fans pay a lot to come in to watch your favorite athletes. If, if they're not on the floor, the NBA has failed. And so hopefully that's something that's that's going to be at least, uh, they're going to do their best to try to rectify. You mentioned kind of having a photographic memory when it comes to your, your charts and your prep too. Um, and I'm curious, because I had read an article that was written about you um, that had specifically mentioned it was a spot in 2010 where you did in like a 24-hour period two jazz games and a Utah football game. Right. Um and obviously you've done a lot uh, in right. your career where you've done a lot of games in similar situations like that. Uh, what's it, how do you keep things straight and kind of what's the, 
what's the best way for you? Um, I, I guess have you ever gotten in a situation? Is my my I guess my question where you're sitting there doing the game on Friday and you're thinking of a stat and you can't think of what it is because it's actually applying to the game you're supposed to do on Saturday mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah. and keeping everything in the right columns. Yeah. You know, luckily, no. Uh, how I do it, I don't know. Uh, there is a separation that, I, I, that I've been able to develop over the years, and that is to, I go back to the word inhale. I think it's the best way to explain what I do, and that is inhale as much information. I exhale it during the broadcast, and then I'm done. Uh, I, I, I leave it, and then I start again on, on my next game, and then I know I'm on a plane. Uh, so let's say I do a jazz game. I jump off out of the booth. I run to a taxi or a, or a, a car service. They take me to the airport, and I go down to Atlanta and do uh, Georgia and Alabama. Uh, and then after that game, I've, I've been on the plane. I've, I've prepared, by the way, for that game as well all week long. Uh, and then I fill in the gaps during the plane ride, also in my hotel room. I've been on the phone, and then I have a production meeting the next morning. Uh, if I'm there on time, uh, then I'll, I'll hit the football practice field. And then, again, everything I know, I put on that three-and-a-half-hour broadcast, jump back on a flight, and then meet the Jazz, let's say, in uh, uh, if we're in, uh, let's say, or at Georgia. Then I'd go to Atlanta. And I jump on a flight, and hopefully they're on the East Coast, and I, I would meet them in Washington for the for the Wizards the next day. And so I'm beat. Don't don't get me wrong, but I think when it's time to do your job, you find that little extra level of uh, adrenaline, and it takes you to the next level. What really helped me, I think, was doing four games in one day during the NCAA tournament. Okay. And I think that's where I learned how to separate each game yeah. and to, and to separate those stats. And then just again, take a deep breath. You have a 30 minute window from game one to game two. And then you have the evening session where you have an hour and a half to kind of regroup, go get a bite to eat and then jump into the, the seat for the night, the night side games. And I think I just had to learn not to panic, take it one game at a time. I know that's overused, uh, in the cliche world of cliches, but, but in reality, true. you you have to. That I think that really does play. That's a fair statement in the in the world of cliches when you have to just go boom done, file it, pull out the next chart and my stat sheets and and books, and have them ready to go if needed, and boom, get that done. Take another deep breath, go re-energize. Uh, with a handful of M and M's and a good, you know, maybe and, and and whatever sandwich you can find at a Diet Coke. I mean, that's that's kind of what fuels you for that whole day, and you're running on adrenaline, man. There's no doubt. And I really loved the day off, whether it was a Friday if I did a Thursday Saturday uh, combo or a Friday Sunday. That next day, you really need to refuel, and then all of a sudden, what is, you know, eight teams you've been dealing with four games has been whittled down in half in just a matter of hours. And that's, that's the beauty of the tournament is because it moves so fast. Teams believe they can win the title on that one given day, which is fascinating. And then by the time you hit that first weekend, you know, you're, you're down to the sweet 16, which is really amazing. A really amazing thing. Do you remember uh, best games you've done uh, or or maybe game you did in the NCAA tournament in particular? 
Well, there's a couple that come to mind. I'm trying to think here. Iowa State was, uh, I only called one of two, I believe, upsets. I think one has been done since I was at CBS, where a 15 seed knocked off a two. Uh, and I also had Bucknell knocking off Kansas, which was the number number three seed, I believe. Uh, I had games up in Boise at Taco Bell Arena where every game was decided with a buzzer beater winning shot. <laughs> uh, and that was unbelievable. I think they labeled that, you know, the day in Boise. Uh, CBS had a grand time with that. Uh, James Worthy, the former Laker great, was my analyst that day. And we looked at each other and said, man, this isn't happening. Every every game was down to the wire. And that was before the uh, interaction and the uh, TNT-TBS merger with CBS. So uh, they used to call it walking the dog at CBS, where they would go around to each site around the country and check in. Well, they kept coming back to Boise, coming back to Bowler Jack and Worthy. Here we go again. <laughs> and is it going to be magical? Yes. They came back to us four times that day, and I just sit back in my chair going, I'll never experience anything like this. Uh, I think if I switch gears real quick to the NBA, I think it was just a year and change ago when I called Kobe's final game at uh, Staples Center. And Jack Nicholson was sitting just no more than six feet from Matt Harpering and I, and he's He's a guy that always came over the table to talk to us, and he kept grinning at us in that, you know, kind of that Joker, Batman, Joker grin. And he, he goes, Kobe's going to go for 30 today. And I thought, there's no way. Kobe's done. Sure enough, he hits 30, and Jack looks at us. He's going for 40, boys. And I thought, oh, no way. Bang, 40. Now, the Jazz had like a 14, 15-point lead in that game. And Kobe... The basketball gods made a visit. How it happened, I don't know. And you know what? Sometimes you can't explain what happens. But Kobe went for 60 in his final game as an NBA pro, and he rallied the Lakers back by himself to beat the Jazz in the final game of the season and the final game of his career. And as heartbreaking, yeah. as heartbreaking as it was to see the Jazz lose, it's amazing. And I don't keep a lot of memorabilia. But that one, I have the sheet, also the box score, a photo, and I don't take photos either. It was just weird that somebody came up to Kobe, Matt, and I prior to tip-off and said, hey, guys, get together with a photo, man. It's Kobe's, you know, it's Kobe's last game. So he was, he was in a really giving, fun mood. He was jumping mm -hmm. around to everybody. We're just on the floor watching warm-ups. And so, yeah, we ducked in for a photo. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, I've got that photo on his final day, and I clipped that to my score sheet and the box score. And I keep, I kept that because that's, that's a hall of fame moment. That's cool. You know, for me, hall that's of fame cool. moment. Yeah. If I can get into uh, the nitty gritty of actually the physical calling of a game with you. Um, one of the big things, particularly for me, I, I, I did radio pretty much exclusively until a couple of years ago um, is obviously the, the layout slashes, the, the layout versus talk debate. Um, and in terms of, how much you say, when you say it, how much you physically call the play. Uh, if a guy's on a breakaway layup, do you let him go in and just say nothing and then punctuate it at the end? Like, how do you approach it? All those types of questions. Uh, what's been your way of attacking uh, actually calling a game versus kind of laying off it a little bit? Another great question in your, uh, in your, uh, in your interview process here, my friend. Um, I get asked that a lot, uh, really, but by fans. And some of them 
again, and you know this, uh, calling radio, you can't please everyone, right? Yeah. Uh, but you have to please yourself in the sense of your style. I always work on my style. I've been, I've been at this a long time and I'm never satisfied, uh, with, with the way the style or my approach or my call. Um, but I think you have to go with gut. I, 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 I think I finally determined that you go with the moment. You have to go with what the, the feeling is, the crowd, the moment, the situation. Um, not every call is the same. Uh, there's sometimes I like to replay it and redo it, but you can't because it's a moment in time. But I don't try to ever. And really, I think broadcasters have to realize this. No fan. You are not the game. And I think that's one of the most important things to remember in broadcasting. You are not the story. You are not the game. Now, look, Al Michaels, when he called the miracle uh, with uh, the USA uh, winning gold. Now, that was a moment. Okay, that he just happened to be involved in because it it needed him. And I think there are moments where I've been a part of only because the moment has brought me into it, if you understand what I'm saying. And and I think that I try not to be, uh, you know, the story because every call cannot be the game winning shot in game seven of the finals. Right. Sure. So yeah, no. You gotta you gotta pick your spots and you know there are some magical moments. I mean, when you have a breakaway and a stuff or a breakaway block that just you come out of your seat with, you gotta go with it because you're involved and the fans are, I think, are riding along uh riding along with you as well. So I don't wanna overplay it. I don't wanna be a guy that overhypes it and people say, Man, the guy, I'm just I'm fatigued. He's he's wearing me out. And you hear that, you know, and I hear it. From, from listening to other broadcasters as well. And I'm thinking, man, that would have been a good layout moment, pal. Should have pr- Probably should have backed off the pedal there. And that's kind of, you know, I think everybody's a critic and everybody has their moments. But I try to let it breathe to really answer your question. Uh, up to that moment, you can, you know, hammer down all you want or let, you know, let it fly. Uh, you know, Hayward dribble drive left side kicks for a three. Now, look, you can say it's in or you can let the moment speak for itself. And that's what I try to do more times than not. Um, and that to me is my my example of how you let it breathe, especially if you're home in a very tight situation. The crowd will tell you what just happened, their reaction. And that's what I love. I love that moment in that second or two after a big shot is made the cutaways from our producer to, to allow that moment to have its moment. And that is to show the fans uh, jumping out of their seat, high fiving, and then their quick reaction of the player who for once may show some emotion, uh, throw a fist in the air. That to me is a home run moment uh, in, in basketball or football on a long drop pass or a long thrown pass down deep over the seam and the guy just barely outruns the safety and he puts that ball right on his hands and he rumbles in for the final 10 yards. That's a beautiful moment. And you let the crowd take it and then you let it breathe. And then all of a sudden you come back in and, and put an exclamation point on it. So, so I get hyped up just talking about it, man. It <laughs> feels good. You know, I, 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 those are great moments. Those are what you work for and to be a part of. And I've been lucky to have quite a few. I want more, though. I'm far from done. What about the flip side? I, I, of I love that? those. The the flip side of that, if you're and I, you know, NFL is probably not a good example, but I I, I don't know if there's like a if there's ever a bass if you're doing an NBA game on a Wednesday night in 
October, and yeah, sure, you know, the, yeah, yeah, it's Utah and Charlotte, and there's eight thousand people there. Uh, which is yeah. still, I mean, for, you know, I, I do mid-major basketball. That's still a large sure. crowd to me. But uh, yeah. <laughs> in perspective, if it's if it's a quieter venue and that crowd isn't necessarily there to carry what would otherwise be a big moment, um, does that change how you approach things? Well, I think it makes you feel maybe a little bit more uncomfortable because you don't have to fight the crowd. And I, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Uh, if you have a crowd and you are fighting that crowd noise in your mic and you're chewing on it, as they say, or they say, Craig, can't hear you the noise is too high eat the mic that's just kind of a cliche in our business and i can tell in my headset you know if you're if your 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 levels are where they should be the crowd can't overtake you which is okay for for that moment um but to get back to your 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 original thought was that when you are in a tough situation on the road and let's say the jazz are winning by 20 and there's no crowd noise and they're starting to trickle out you know you still you still try to find a way to keep the level up for the fans at home. Now, if the Jazz are home and are getting knocked down by 25, that's where it's really tough because there's no crowd noise there either, and the crowd begins to trickle out of the arena, and you're trying to keep interest, and that's one of my fear is, oh, boy, that's where I have to dig down, knowing that the channel or people are flipping back and forth, seeing if the Jazz have made a comeback or not. But your job is still to try to keep as enthusiastic uh, and as engaged as you can, that's what you have to do now, not the other, the other part of that is don't overplay it and try too hard to make an exciting game, a non-exciting game, exciting, because look, again, the fans are smart. They realize what's going on. And this is This is an off night for, for the Utah jazz, whether it's home or away. And so that's where you try to broaden your scope especially at the end of the third and the fourth quarters when you realize the game's out of hand and you go back to your homework and you go back to the bigger picture of what's happening in the, in the uh, West or East and just the NBA overall. You mentioned at the very beginning uh, of our conversation that you love writing um, and that that's a passion of yours. And I had seen a story about you where you had, you had talked about being a good writer just professionally and, and a, as a broadcaster, how that can help you. Um, yes. But is there a particular side of that that can relate to play-by-play because it's unscripted? Um, but how can being a good writer still help you um, kind of write on the fly, I guess, in yeah. play-by-play? And a lot of times we do. Uh, coming out of break, I'll just write. I'll scribble. I mean, I have the worst handwriting in, in very uh, tenuous moments, but I just know what I want to say, and I'll just jot down a couple of things that may have happened when I come out of break or if they're showing me a replay. Uh, and I think that does help to be able to, you just said it perfectly right on the fly. I think you have to have enough confidence in your writing skills so that in the time where the guy tells me, Craig, look, we're going to do a quick promo hit coming back out of break. I want you to voice over these two highlights in 10 seconds. And so I just jot down maybe four or five key words that I ad lib off of that. And so I think in my mind's eye, I, I write it in my head and then I just say it. And it's kind of hard maybe to understand it and to explain, but I think the years of writing script for six and 10 o'clock sportscasts and Sunday specials that we did at, at here in Salt Lake City for so long that you become an ad-libber through your writing skills, but you have to have confidence in what you want to say on the fly. It takes time. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not a skill that you obtain overnight but it's something I've been working on ever since I started in college and beyond. So, um, 
you know, it's, it's, um, it is a challenge, but I love that challenge. I, I, and when I wrote my scripts, sometimes you're criticized too, Joel, and maybe you can relate to this, you know, in sportscast broadcast writing, sometimes it's fragmented. We don't get the, the, the luxury of writing, you know, out everything that we want to say grammatically correct. And some English teachers have probably gotten hmm. on my back a little bit, but it's fragmented, but it's pause where you make the moment allow itself to breathe. Mm. And so, you know, George Brett, who I follow, you know, I mean, pick any player you want, you know, at the plate, here's the swing, kicks it out to left field and you let it breathe. And then it's up over out three run shot Royals by three. Now that's not a complete sentence, right? But in, 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 in sports verbiage, you got your job done. Um, but I do like to write and, you know, and that means complete sentences, <laughs> but I also enjoy putting packages together. When I was, uh, when I was doing local sports, you go out and find a, a story, sit down to interview, uh, the late great Lavelle Edwards, uh, the late, not the late, but the former coach, Jerry Sloan, who's battling an illness right now, uh, or Kyle Whittingham or, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've talked to, you know, uh, a lot of different people from all walks of life, but I like to take that that story, a raw story, and bring it back to the station, write it, edit it, and then bring it to life. And that's a real, to me, that's a real challenge and something I like to see uh, something come from nothing. And you, and you bring it to life on screen and let people understand. Um, for example, real quick, uh, years ago, I got a phone call from a bowling alley and the lady said, hey, we had a 300 game last night. I said, ah, that's fantastic. I'll try to get it on the air. It's just a quick throwback. 300s don't happen all the time. But she goes, sure. oh, but this is something special. I said, what? He goes, well, uh, I want you to meet this man. And you'll understand what I'm saying. And I'm not going to spoil it right now, but, but I'll tell you what happened. I, <laughs> I met him. I met him at the bowling alley. And I was absolutely just, my mouth, I just like, wow. Vietnam veteran lost his leg Christmas Eve, 1966. Oh, wow. And bowling saved his life. Now this story, I still have, and I have it on a, on a disc in my desk, because if you're ever down and you want to watch something, I go, wow. Cause it's really one of my favorite stories I ever did, but to make a long story short, he bowled a 300 on one leg wow. and he has crutches, but his wife, uh, and he, he was, he was depressed, which you can imagine after losing your limb in Vietnam came back and bowling was, he was able to bowl his anger out if that makes sense. And I go, wow, bowling is a way to get your aggression out. And so he perfected the game. Uh, his wife would hand him the ball and then he would hop and release the ball. And it was fascinating to see the expertise of this guy in the bowling alley. But he had bowled the 300 the week before, and I finally caught up with him. And I did a story, and he talked about Vietnam, talked about the night he lost his leg, and then talked about how bowling saved his life. And the angel, his wife, who's by his side now, and I just was so overwhelmed. That's the type of story that I like to write and like to show fans and people at home, different sides of people, because there's everyone's got a story, Joel, everyone. And sometimes you just find a real special one, and uh, that would that one stays with me today. How's that translate into into the the live game aspect you're doing now too? Just from a storytelling aspect, um, 
and being able, you've got to, you know, when you're telling a story like that, you can give it its due because you're given that block of time on the air. Um, if you're telling a story that is obviously not that, uh, but is some sort of anecdote or maybe is something that has got a more serious vibe to it uh, in the flow of a game, um, how have you found the best ways to weave those in? Sometimes those those stories find their way into a broadcast in um, a timeout where we're still on air, obviously, and there's a discrepancy on a down marker or what have you. Uh, and if it, I don't want to ever force it. It just depends if it just happens to be there and this, the topic is, is relevant. Um, sometimes those nuggets, as we, as I said before, are stories that you want to tell about an individual, but only if you, if the time is right. And let's say again, in an NBA or college basketball game, when it's one-sided, those are those nuggets that come into play sure. uh, that can really fill some time, especially if that player is, let's say, a second or third string running back or a 11th or 12th guy off the bench. And all of a sudden you have a story that you have to relate on his journey to the NBA or his journey from high school to college or his journey from college to the National Football League. That's what I found out, too, Joel. Everyone has a story. And I know that's repetitive, but. It's amazing when you have time to sit down and just discuss things, uh, what people will tell you. And that's instead of X's and O's, yeah, you can talk cover two and zone defenses and you can talk man coverage all you want. But sometimes if you just sit and listen and ask a question, where are you from? Uh, why is what, you know, why football instead of not, you know, maybe you're a three-star athlete, but someone's always got a story. And I think if you just take time to sit back and jot down a few notes and you can get that on a broadcast, you, you just made the broadcast better for all. And I try to do that every time, every time I'm on the air, tell a story the best you can. How much do you watch your stuff back still to this day? Used to a lot. Used to a lot. I think I became obsessed, honestly, okay. on, on the nightly. I don't know if I was obsessed, but I <laughs> wanted to see how I came across the, to the viewer. And um, after a while, I said enough, uh, because critically, you can tear yourself apart. And I think I started to trust myself more. And I just decided I'm going to go do my thing and hopefully it's good. Now, there were times still I wanted to go back or I'd hear a play. I was lucky enough a couple of times, three times, you know, you'd be, make the ESPN play of the day. OK, uh, call of the day. And, you know, people would call you up. Hey, man, you know, you just made that. I go, oh, wow, great. You know, and I'd, I'd find it or, or listen to it. And, you know, there you go. Like, ah, I could have laid down a little bit better. But you, you do have to, to to make yourself better, to take the next step. And, you know, I don't do it as much. No, uh, I record a few games or my wife will and I'll come back and I'll flip it to like the fourth quarter and just kind of see how I ended the, the broadcast and how we built up to a winning shot or something like that, because it still comes into play. And it helps me to understand layout, give it more juice. Uh, and I think you have to still be critical of yourself. Obviously, you, you never call a perfect game. And Joel, if you do. Let's retire. Okay. <laughs> if you call it, you, you, you retire, whether you're, it's next week or next month. No, but I'm just, I always say that to myself, look, there's never a perfect game. If I call it, then, you know, then, I, then let's, let's, let's go to retirement bill, but uh, I have too much fun and I don't want to go there. Last question. I'll let you go on this note. Cause uh, you've been more than generous with your time. 
Um, but I want to ask you something more offbeat, and that is uh, I, I read in a story about you that you would love to, and I, I don't know if you have to this point, uh, be in an animated feature film. Is that true? <laughs> well, you did your homework. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do have. You know, look, I guess I grew up at a time where I was infatuated with cartoons. I love the <laughs> old Popeye black and whites. I uh, don't, and you're too young. Uh, you know, there was a uh, Johnny Quest. Oh, I, oh, uh, I, don't I, know. I, oh, I love yeah. Johnny Quest. Johnny Quest just mesmerized me as a kid. Popeye, Jetsons, you know, all that stuff. That uh, wasn't that big of a Bugs Bunny, you know, all that, that stuff. But, those other kind of high level, you know, a little bit more advanced cartoon stuff. And then I thought, man, the voices behind that. And then I saw animated Pixar films <laughs> and all of a sudden I go, wow, I love an opportunity uh, to throw a voice into a character in my off time. And I'm still in that pursuit, Joel. If anyone listening wants to give <laughs> me a shot, please, I would love. I've auditioned for a couple. I've done some, uh, you know, a lot of business voiceover business videos. But I think, again, it's tough in animation because usually you sell that that uh, movie with Hollywood star names. Correct. Yeah. So all I want to do is be like the you know, I want to be like the third bear or, <laughs> you know, whatever it may be or the rooster, whatever, just to see if you could bring that character to life. That kind of fascinates me. Uh, it's a hobby. If it ever happens, I would love to jump into it. Uh, you know, in the summertime when I have a little off time, downtime, and I've got a couple of people I'm working with right now to try to make that happen. But so far it's, it's a very tough, you know, our business is difficult enough, but that one's even a higher level of difficulty. And, uh, I'd love to just have a shot at some sort of a small role just to kind of see how they do it and experience it. I think that's part of it. That's fascinating to me is how it all, again, maybe it's how this, how you bring a character to life, just how you bring a story to life. I think is what fascinates me the most. It would look great at the end too, where you like the headstone just says like voice of jazz, national broadcaster, bear number five. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. That'd be a nice, <laughs> uh, a nice addition to it. But you know, if it happens great, if not, it's, it's something I'm trying to work towards, but look, I got a plate full. Uh, it's fun. You know how the business runs. It's a, it's a privilege to be in front of the mic. And it's been a privilege to us hanging out with you for a while. Craig Bowlerjack, our guest here on Play by Playcast, animated feature film. That's something we've not hit on in this podcast yet. We have done acting before. Tom Wormy, uh, who works for the ACC Network and has done the Final Four team stream uh, and does a lot of golf play by play. Where was Tom? I'm flipping back through the feed here. Um, we did Tom Wormy back in March ish. Now I'm in February. If you scroll back through the archives, everything's on the archive. You haven't had a chance to listen. Episode 41 uh, is Tom Wormy. Uh, we talk about acting because he's been on One Tree Hill and a couple other things. And uh, he plays sportscasters, uh, I believe, virtually every time. Um, but we haven't talked about being in an animated short. For a podcast about people that use their voice professionally, uh, it's the first time we really kind of dived into that. You know, I, I saw an interesting interview on that note, too. If you've ever seen In Depth with Graham Bensinger, uh, it's an interview show. He talks to a lot of really interesting people. Uh, you can find it on Yahoo. It's on a, a lot of TV networks that are kind of in his network as well. Uh, he did, a, did an interview with Larry the Cable Guy, of all people. Um, and I saw a snippet from it a couple of weeks ago, and Larry was talking about getting the call to be the voice of Mater in Pixar and how it like made his career. 
talk about Larry the Cable Guy being I mean rough and tumble comedian, and he was literally moved to tears by being the voice of Mater and being able to be in an animated short and to work with a company that uh, is so well renowned and and their their movies are are so uh, impactful and important in the the pop culture landscape and society. So uh, <laughs> random aside, but hey. It's it's those little things. We all we all I I feel like everybody's got something they want to be able to lend their voice to. We all do sports play by play. But like in the back of your brain, I think we've all thought it would be cool to act or be the voice of a cartoon or like be the cool whip voiceover guy. Um, any one of those things. I, I feel like we've all we've all had one of those those inklings and itches so it was fun fun to to finish up with craig um on that note that being said uh i am back from europe next week so um we will have a new guest on the podcast that has yet to be taped i don't yet know who it is uh, but i will leave you in suspense until next friday morning many thanks as always to craig bowler jack for joining us many thanks to you as well for joining us here on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next week, this is PXPCast, and we are out. See you.